Well, if you have your Bibles, can you turn to Luke chapter 5 once again? Continue our series in Luke. Luke chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 39. Before we begin, let us ask God to bless his word. Father, we desperately need you to meet us this morning. We need you to refresh us. We need you to fill us. We need you to speak to us. We need you. And and Father, forgive us because we don't even know how badly we need you. But we know, in our heads at least, unless you open our eyes and our ears, we can't see or hear. So, Father, we ask this morning that you would speak and speak loudly. For we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 5, we're this morning looking at verse 33 through 39. And here, once again, we run into our friends, the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you'll notice, as we're going through here, these scribes and Pharisees, they just come peppering the questions. This now is the third question, and next time we're going to see that they've got more questions, and they keep increasing. We just got introduced to them not too long ago, and they're everywhere now, and their intensity will dramatically increase. They keep on confronting Jesus on issues, and it's one confrontation after another. And from here on out, Jesus will have to contend with them. And what we see here is Jesus respond to them in ways that reveal his genius and their stupidity. And the hardship they are going to have entering into the new covenant. What we're about to see here is why these scribes and Pharisees are going to have such a hard time entering into what Jesus is bringing. And the interesting thing about Jesus, as we'll note, is that Jesus doesn't cast pearls before swine. He is very careful how to respond. And so he typically messes with them by answering their questions either with a question, a riddle, or a parable. And this morning we have a particular parable that he answers them with. And because these particular Pharisees and scribes Because their father is the devil, Jesus sends them away with an answer, but it's clouded, it's shrouded. In fact, actually, you know what? Even the disciples themselves, when they hear this response that Jesus Jesus gives, I guarantee you they have no idea what he's talking about. None. And as we look at this, you'll see that it's not that easy. But the only advantage we have this morning is being so far removed from the situation that we've seen it all unfold and we've seen the Spirit come and we've seen so much happen and so much revelation taking place that we can look back and have a much better idea of what Jesus is saying here. But we will see here that Jesus is indeed doing a new thing. Jesus is turning the world upside down. But they see him, just what what happened last week we talked about, here's Jesus at a party with sinners and tax collectors. Partying and feasting, having a good old time. And the question that came there, we just looked at last week, is how, how is it that he sits and eats with sinners and tax collectors? 
And Jesus answers them with his primary purpose of coming. I've come to call not the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. And here, this, here comes the, another question. And it comes from the apparent context in which we just saw Jesus. He just, he's at this feast, and there's no reason to believe that as we move to the next set of verses here that he's left the feast. He's probably there, and here comes another question. And if you look at verse 33, it says, And they said to him, who are they? The scribes and Pharisees. They said, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Here's the thing. This is why they're asking this. They're looking at Jesus. First of all, they wonder what he's doing with these people, and we looked at that. And now they're wondering, what are you doing? <laughs> if I, what? Look, you're having a good old time. Eating and drinking, and so are your disciples, and your John's disciples and our disciples are fasting and praying. And a, and a typical tradition within Judaism at this time, especially among the Pharisees, was to fast twice a week. They had two fast days. And we, we know this in particular from Luke chapter 18, verse 12, where it says, and this is where Jesus was talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector going into the temple, and he, and he gives this example. And there he says, the Pharisee goes in and he prays, I fast twice a week and give a tithe of all I earn. And there we get a little insight as to their fasting pattern. They fast twice a week. And historically, historians will say as well that that's, that's what they would do. They would fast. It was known historical record that they would fast twice a week. It was a very common practice. And yet, probably and most likely they figure on the day of fasting, what's happening here is it's a day of fasting... And what's Jesus doing? Him and his disciples having a good old time eating and drinking. And so they're scratching their heads. They're not like, what's this guy doing? But Jesus helps them understand with an analogy. And in verse 34, he says this. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Well, you know, a common understanding, right? You ask the question, do you make the, the, the groomsmen fast? Should they fast while the, the, the groom is about to get married? Well, in that culture, that would be ludicrous. He asked the question because they know that they would feast and celebrate for seven days for a wedding. And so th- they know that if you, were, if you were to come to a wedding and be fasting, it would be a... A shame to the, the groom. It would be like, I'm not here to celebrate with you. I'm not here to feast with you. I, I've got some fasting to do. The guy would say, what's wrong? I, it, aren't you going to celebrate with me this great occasion? It would be absolutely ludicrous. And so he asked the question. And he knows their answer to say, yeah, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? And so he, he further explains, well, this is why they're not fasting. The groom is here. And you can... Guaranteed, they have no idea. What are you talking about? You're the groom? These are the groomsmen? What? This guy's nuts. What's he referring to? What's he getting at? But, he, but at least the analogy works. They understand one thing from this, don't they? That you would not be fasting if you're in the presence of the groom and he's preparing for a wedding. Sure enough, that's easy enough to understand. I get that part. I don't get how this has to do with you. I don't want to get how it has to do with this situation. 
And this is common. Okay, I get the, I get the analogy. I do not get the connection. And, and here's the thing. Jesus anticipates the day when they will fast. There's coming a day when they will fast. He says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and the people will fast in those days. And we all know, right? The disciples don't know what he's referring to. Jesus tries to tell them as they go along, and, and, P, and Peter is perplexed by this, that, that he would be crucified, he'd be taken and crucified. He's like, no, may it never be, Lord. Are you kidding me? So they're not getting it all at this point, but we understand that what he's referring to is Jesus being taken away and crucified. And we know at that time, we can almost be guaranteed, couldn't we? That when Jesus is taken away and crucified, they're going to be fasting. Because when you look at fasting in the Old Testament and the saints who fasted, and the whole idea of fasting is when a person is going through such a difficult time, the circumstances of life are so pressing upon them that they lose their appetite. They're in complete distress. They're in distress, and the thing about fasting is I, I have no appetite for food. It's not like fasting somehow jerks the chain of God, and if you do fast, somehow you get requests quicker. The whole idea of fasting is I've lost my appetite. Have you ever lost someone you loved in a horrible way? How interested in food are you? If you've ever been there, it's like the last thing you want to do. You're sick to your stomach. If you've ever been sick to your stomach and have been that kind of distress, food loses all its appeal. Fasting and calling out to God because of this distress is what you do. It's not to be made into some kind of ritual that they would do just because they think that by doing it, they're somehow more holy, which they thought. Jesus knew the time would come when the, when the groom would be taken away and they would fast. And they would fast because they were in great distress. And indeed they did. But you know what? The Pharisees had no idea who's sitting there. This is the God of heaven and earth in flesh. God has come to dwell amongst his people. The promise that was foretold thousands of years to Israel, and Israel was anticipating the promise of God visiting them, God coming to them, the Messiah delivering them, and there he was. I tell you what, if they understood who was saying these words, who was sitting before them, they should have been leaping and dancing and jumping for joy. And they should have been able to see the signs. Salvation had come to them. Jesus was delivering people from blindness, from lameness, from deafness. He was, deli- he was casting out demons. Salvation was coming to the people of Israel, and they didn't even see it. It was happening in their midst. They didn't see that God had visited them. And they should have been rejoicing. They should have been giving thanks, but instead they're analyzing. Instead they're critiquing. Instead they have all these questions like, who does this person think he is? But before their very eyes, they're watching the devil being cast out and the curse being removed. They're seeing salvation come. Yet they're all concerned about fasting. You know, we can do the same thing. We can get busy, and we can get analyzing doctrines and theology. We can get fasting and get all serious. 
And we can miss the fact that there's an abundant life in Christ to be realized. Of course, there's times to fast, right? Of course, there's times of deep distress in our lives. Of course, we have seasons where God brings distress and fasting is absolutely appropriate. But when we're living in the fullness of Christ, we want to celebrate and rejoice. We want to enjoy, we want to dance, we want to celebrate the fact that Jesus is dwelling in us in richness and with us. We should be the happiest, most joyful, most celebratory people on the planet. And why? Why should we? Because Jesus dwells in us. Do you realize that what we have today is better than the disciples have had? Here they, ha- they had the Savior there as another person. Here he was in their midst. You- Jesus said something to those disciples. I tell you the truth, it's better that I go away. And what will happen? Because when I go away, then the comforter will come. Because if I didn't go away, he wouldn't come. But if I go away, he'll come. And then Jesus will dwell in us in a way that they didn't know then. Jesus dwelled with them. Jesus dwells within us. And when Jesus is there and and his fullness is there, there is nothing left but celebratory partying, rejoicing, giving thanks. And often our own souls, our own spiritual condition shows us that we're not communing with Jesus. We're not delighting in Jesus. We're not filling up with Jesus. We're not communing with him and dining with him. But instead, he becomes this distant thought or theological person in our minds. But we have just as much reason to rejoice and more so than they did. And this is why actually Jesus goes on to say what he does. He gets into this parable about a garment. If you look at verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And in fact, when the new garment shrinks, it says in the other gospels, it tears the old. It tears it apart. They must have looked at one another. You can imagine hearing this. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, of, okay, yeah, you wouldn't take something new. And I got something old. I got this, these old new pair of pants, and I got these old pair of pants. These old pair of pants got a hole in them. Well, what should we do? Well, let's cut out a piece from these new pair of pants and stick it on the old. Are you nuts? <laughs> you know, throw out the old and wear the new. So they're all, they're all going, okay, I get what he's talking about, but what does that have to do with what we're talking about? What does that have to do with fasting? Well, you, you can almost see them. What, what is he talking about? <laughs> okay, that makes sense. I get, I get that. Of course you wouldn't do that. Of course. All right. That'd be crazy. If anything, you know, take, take an old piece and patch it on the old pair of jeans and wear those, and then they got two pair. But to wreck the new, to wear the old, we, we do that today, and we call them designer jeans. <laughs> Cut them all up and wear them all out. But they're new. But the meaning as to what Jesus was getting at here was completely shrouded to them. 
And notice throughout here, Jesus is doing something. In this section here, Jesus is playing with words. Old, new, old, new. Old garment, new garment. We're going to see next, old wine, new wine. Old wineskin, new wineskin. Those who have the old, have had the old, prefer the old and not the new. All the way through this old, new play on words he's referring to. What's he getting at? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus is revealing to them their folly and lack of understanding of what they are saying, uh, what, he, what he's come to do, what Jesus has come to do. They want somehow Jesus, they want Jesus to patch, take him and patch him into their old garment. The old garment being the old covenant. They're trying to take Jesus and they're trying to make him fit into the old covenant. Yet that would be crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Why? Because Jesus is bringing a whole new garment. And he's making the old obsolete. It says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking, and, and a quote, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So Jesus is telling them there, sitting there, that he's, I've come to fulfill the, the, the old covenant. I have come, this new garment is here in your presence, and what you're trying to do is cut the new garment and place it on the old. But you don't understand. You don't understand that you would never do that in reality, and you wouldn't do this now if you knew who was speaking to you. It would be ludicrous. And of course, not even his own disciples know this. They don't understand what he's talking about. They don't know what he's getting at. They don't know that he is this new garment. The old garment is the old covenant that was there. It served its purpose, but now its time was done because Jesus came to fulfill it and it'll be taken away. But this this isn't the only parable he gives. He gives another one. The old garment, new garment. And now he he changes the metaphor a little bit and talks about wine. Old wine, I'm sorry, new wine and old wineskins. And look at verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, what happens? The new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And here's the reason why. I have to understand a little bit about how that culture and how that all worked in the whole winemaking process. Because when you crush grapes, the skin has yeast on it. And when the, skin, the, the yeast on the skin meets the sugar on the inside, do you know what happens? Amazing transformation starts to take place. This yeast starts to eat the sugar. The sugar, I mean, and then the byproduct of this is carbonation and alcohol. And that's what starts to happen. You crush these grapes, and all of a sudden, you've begun the winemaking process. And so they understand, and here's, here's the deal. This is kind of the, how this would all work in, in their historical context. They have these large square slab, boxes, square boxes made out of slabs of granite usually. And they would be carved out, and either on the corner or in the center would be a drain hole. And you would wash your feet 
and legs very clean, making sure they're very clean. And then you would get in there and you would have a tamper and you'd walk around, crush the grapes and also be tamping as you're crushing and crush all these grapes. And then they would be pushed towards and squeezed into the hole, the drain hole, which had a filter system that kept the seeds and the skins out. And so then the juice would run into a, a, like a, a large basin that was also made out of stone. And then they would take it from there and put it into clay jars. And then from clay jars, they would let it sit in a cave somewhere with a, where the climate or the temperature was actually moderated. Now, do you know what would happen if you seal those jars off? Doug knows what would happen. He does this all the time. <laughs> but what would happen is they would explode. You would have an absolute explosion. And usually it takes the processes, they would wait around 10 days, around 10 days for the yeast to do its work and eat up the sugars. They didn't know, back then they didn't know chemically what was happening. They just know that this thing, what would happen when it started working? It would start burping, it would start belching, it would the stuff's going on. Like, what's happening? I don't know, but it's turning into wine is what's happening. That's what they know. But what's happening is the yeast is eating the sugar and it's producing carbonation and alcohol. And so it's starting to turn. Now, after about 10 days, you know what they do then? They would take this wine, pour it out of the jars, into wineskins. And this is the new wine. But new wine wasn't completely done. There's still a little bit of fermentation that will happen after that. And here's the thing. Well, new wineskins will stretch. They have some stretch to them. And so they can handle the, the, the little bits that's left, the, the fermentation that's left. And so it'll expand. An old wine skin, they dry out. That, it's animal skin, and it gets dry. And guess what happens when you put pressure on dry animal skin? It splits. It bursts. And so they all know. See, this is, they, they grew up, this is wine country. <laughs> There's wines and grapes everywhere. This is a very common practice. They all understand the process. They all know what happens. They all are sitting there. If you were to ask a question, what happens when you put new wine in old wineskins? Everyone would say, easy, they break. You don't do that. New wine, new wineskins. That's what you do. So they get that part of it. They culturally understand the parable, but they have no clue what he's talking about. Okay, I get that. Now, what does that have to do with fasting? It's like, this guy speaks in riddles. I mean, even the disciples would have went, <laughs> we'll talk about him afterwards because we don't know what he's getting at. But this old, this new wine Jesus is referring to again, the new wine of the new covenant, it needs a new wineskin. The, the old wine and the old wineskin is referring to the old covenant. You would not take the old wineskin of the old covenant, and Jesus comes to bring in the new wine of the new covenant and place it in there. It could not contain it. The new wine needs a new wineskin. Jesus is coming. I am the new wine bringing new, new wineskin. I'm going to establish a new covenant in my blood. And here's the ironic thing, which is, I find very fascinating and interesting. Is we got this new wine, new wineskin is in Acts chapter Two that was read for us this morning. Once new wine of the Spirit was poured out into the new wineskin of the church, the ironic claim, the ironic thing that happened by those observing it was that they said that they were filled with new wine. I don't know if you remember hearing that this morning, but here's 
how it is stated in that Acts chapter 2 passage at the very end of verse 12, I believe it was. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. And why did they say that? Well, they didn't know how ironic that was based on what Jesus is saying here because it's truly they were filled with the new wine. This is the new wine of the new covenant. God was going to come and dwell amongst their people in a way they had never, ever known before. There was a new way of approaching God that was going to take place. They were going to approach God through Christ by the Spirit. And God was going to come and dwell in his new temple. And what was the new temple? His people in them. This was completely new. The new covenant establishes a completely new way. The old covenant, the old wineskin, it was all about the ceremonies, the rituals, the law, and the letter, and the sacrifices, and all that stuff, right? Well, what Jesus is coming to do is he's coming to fulfill that, and the new wine that he's bringing cannot be contained in that. The new wine's coming from heaven, and it's going to fill up his body, the church, and it's going to be brand new. But at the time, they didn't understand that. They didn't know that the old was going away. What are they trying to do? What's he saying to them? What you're trying to do is you're trying to take the new thing that has come into your midst. The new wine is in your presence right now, and you're trying to put it into your old wineskin. And know what you're having troubles with? It's busting the bounds. It's destroying it. You're watching me. You're fasting. I'm eating and drinking. This is the time of celebration. And maybe in the Old Covenant, when you're still longing for Messiah, you're still anticipating, you're still crying out to God, Oh, God, send the promise. Now he's saying the promise is here. And if you try to put this new wine that's here, and coming into that old wineskin, it's going to burst. It's not going to happen. And that's why you're having a problem right now. But they didn't understand that. And this is why Jesus ends with what he does in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. And this was a stinger, but they don't get it. Old, here's the thing with old wine. Old wine mellows and loses its edges and sharpness, and it becomes good. And when we taste and we begin to drink the old wine, we actually like it much better because the old wine, it's lost all the edginess. It just has a better flavor, a a better uh, roundness to to its uh, taste. And our palates, they begin to delight in that and like that. And then the new wine almost becomes undrinkable once you start to like the old stuff. And this is what happens with us wine snobs, right? No longer can we drink two bakchak. <laughs> we want the good old stuff. And, the, and, and, we, and if you drink it more and more and like it more and more, the newer stuff becomes less and less palatable. Because the old is better. But the main point, the main point that these scribes and Pharisees and all those of Israel who love the old covenant with all of its rituals, with all of its laws, with all of its ceremonies, with the temple and all the trappings, they're going to struggle. No, no, let me rephrase. They don't like the taste of the new wine that's come. They're not going to like it. 
And this is why they're having a hard time already with Jesus. They're having a hard time eat him eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Here he is feasting, and we're fasting. And this struggle will become more and more evident as we move through the gospel narrative. And we'll continue to see the scribes and the Pharisees increasing in their rage towards Jesus. They hate the new wine. They can't stand it. And he just busts the bounds everywhere. He's breaking. And he's, he's, the next, where we're headed next is with the Sabbath. And it's at every point, Jesus is just pushing the envelope and breaking out. And, and they can't contain this guy. And this guy is not fitting in the old way, in the old system, because he's bringing this new thing. Stand it. Finally, they have to kill this guy because his influence has grown so much. He's got Israel following after him. They, why? They love the old wine. They don't like the new. They've fallen in love with the old wine. But you know what? There's a sense in which we start liking the old wine as well. And let, I'm going to play with this metaphor a bit. It's not exactly how it was intended here, but this is kind of how we become like them, the Pharisees, the scribes. We start liking the old wine, and what I mean by that is that we start liking old things like traditions, rituals. We, we've got our pet doctrines. We've got our tidy confessions, our comfortable liturgies. We can get caught in the trap of living in the old-time religion. And if you build memories, as, as we go along in the Christian faith, you know what we can sometimes long for? The good old days. And we're trying to bring back distant memories, distant things, and bring them into today because we think by doing that we'll have that same experience again. And we start to fall in love with tradition. We love the things that we do. And sometimes our heart can be shriveled up like a raisin. And we're okay with that as long as we get to do all these things that we used to do. As long as we can have our pet doctrines, as long as we can have the routine that we have, I just kind of get used to being a raisin. You forget what it's like to be a grape. But you're all shriveled up inside. Dry as bones. And we don't even realize that we haven't experienced God afresh, anew, in a powerful and exciting way in years. In, in, in some way, we become an old wineskin drinking old wine and really liking it. And when we see God do something powerful over there across the street, in another church or somewhere, and all these people are being converted and they're really excited about God, all we can do is really we sit back and, and analyze how immature they are, how ignorant they are, and really they really have to grow up. They have to learn some things. They, you know, they'll, they'll stabilize after a while and, and they'll get over it, but they need to do it quick because they're irritating me. And you know what? I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for us. I'm afraid for the church. Whenever this happens, I'm afraid for myself that I get too complacent and I love just the things that I do. And, you know, it's not that it's the greatest, but it's what I know. 
It's what I know. But in terms of a live, vibrant, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrating and rejoicing in that and being really excited about my relationship with him, why? Because he's met me, he's filled me. Well, that's not happening. But I've just, I've learned, this is the worst possible scenario I can think of. I've learned to be okay with my complacency. I've learned to be okay with my emptiness. It doesn't bother me because I've just learned to get along. You know, one of the things that we uh, talked about last week at our leadership retreat was, was this very thing, how we're seeing, even in our own lives as leaders, that spiritually we're run on empty so often and just doing the next thing and barely hanging on. And yet within our hearts, has not been a fresh taste of God in a long time. There's a dry and thirsty land in here, but we've learned how to get along. We've learned how to just go one day at a time. But in terms of being refreshed, in terms of being renewed, in terms of reading the Psalms, and it says, your loving kindness is better than life. Or it talks about, you know, his soul about longs and thirsts for you as a deer pants after water. Or knowing God as this, you know, in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand is pleasures forevermore. Do we know that experientially? Or do we just know that's in the Bible? I know that's in the Bible. I know it's there. I know the psalmist is longing for God, being filled up with God, delighting in God, and overflowing with God. But is that my experience? No, it's not. So I can get up here and preach to you what, you know, this is what we have to fill ourselves up with God. We have to drink from his tap. we got to drink down this wine that's from him and be filled up. But you know what? I think the, the biggest problem with me, at least, is a lack of desire for God. A lack of desire. It's like, do I hunger and do I thirst after him? No. I... I do what I need to do. Am I filled to overflowing? Is there strength and life coming out of me? No. Do I know Jesus as my full portion? No. And I think so easy for us to become like a Pharisee. And if we're not careful, we become grumpy, judgmental, sarcastic, and finding blame all over the place. But I pray. I pray for me and I pray for us as a church. That God, I think the very first thing that must happen is that we have got to get hungry. If God doesn't help us, if he doesn't stir us, if he doesn't awaken us to our desperate need of him, how do you not just go through the motions? And yet we're weak, 
We're frail, we stumble, we fall, we have issues, we struggle. But, and, and our prayers are like this, oh God, have mercy, help me. We just want his help to get through. And so he helps us get through. Man, that should be, we should be so discontented with that. We should want his fullness. We should want his life filling us up and overflowing so we're filled with strength. We can say your loving kindness is truly better than life. We could say I long for him. I, my soul longs for you like, like being in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Do you ever see a little child who's hungry? What do they do? They scream and they kick and they cry until they get fed. Oh, that we would be like little children and be very dissatisfied with where we're at. That God would trouble us. That God would stir us. That he would make us so hungry for him that he would fill us to overflowing. And that it would fill us so full that it overflows here and it overflows into the streets and overflows into the nations around us and life gets spread. And healing comes to the nations. Jesus came doing a new thing. And he came to do something that the church itself had no idea was going to happen. But when he came and he brings the new wine in the new wineskin, and he fills them up. They are filled with life, joy, power, and this goodness spreads like wildfire. And oh, that God would do that for us. Father, I thank you so much that you do hear our cries. Oh, that you would make our souls hungry for you that we would cry out to you, we would long for you, we would beg of you, we, would, we, would, we know, Father, we know that if we will humble ourselves and be broken and contrite before you, you will not refuse us. There is no way that you wouldn't act immediately if we came to you in brokenness and contriteness, crying to you. You would fill us so full we didn't know what happened to us. You'd fill us to overflowing. Oh, Father, please give us that hunger and forgive us for apathy. Have mercy on us. Look with pity on us as you see our weakness, our patheticness, our frailness. We cannot, we cannot live without you. Oh, God, meet us and fill us and do it for your son's sake and the glory of your name, for we need you desperately. Amen.